episode 21 of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian, a writer, and an editor, and I study 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. Uh, and I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. Um, when I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing social media for the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. So, since it's summer and it's hot, um, and I can guarantee you it's hot here in Philadelphia, I made the mistake of stepping outside earlier today, and that was silly. Um, <laughs> anyway, not a particularly compelling tie-in, but hard not to point it out. Uh, so today we're going to be talking about uh, the environmental movement and climate change. Um, so we'll be going over uh, the, some of the many different ways that women throughout history have engaged with nature and uh, how they've shaped environmental and climate justice movements that we have today. Uh, then a little later, researcher Tina Sicka will be joining us to talk about her book, Climate, Technology, Gender, and Justice, The Standpoint of the Vulnerable, and how feminist approaches to science can help us tackle climate change. Um, we'll be diving into some pretty crunchy feminist theory in that segment, so uh, if you're into that sort of thing, then you're definitely in for a treat. In the United States, at least, the story of environmentalism sort of typically begins in the 1960s with Rachel Carson and the publication of her book, Silent Spring. And, of course, Carson and her book were an important turning point in American culture and in the environmental movement. But before Carson, women had always been leaders in environmental activism for more than a century always more than a century, whatever, you get it. <laughs> they organized for bird conservation, they campaigned against animal cruelty, they wrote popular science books and spicy poetry that lampooned male scientists, and they spearheaded legislation for unadulterated food and housing regulation. So all of these things actually shaped and built the movements that we have today for environmentalism even if they don't sort of necessarily conform to what we think of as the environmental movement, maybe chaining yourself to a bulldozer or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but before we get into who some of these women were and what they did, I think we should just back up a little bit and look at the unique cultural relationship that women have had with nature to kind of help us understand how and why some of these earlier women engaged with nature and science in the way that they did. Uh, yeah, so since basically forever, uh, both science and sort of general culture have connected women and uh, the non-human natural world in predictively oppressive ways. Uh, the line of thinking kind of goes something like this. Uh, women, like nature, are unknowable and mysterious. Um, our wombs are magical cauldrons of reproduction, and our bodies are haunted by specters of hysteria. Uh, so all of this stuff is stuff we talk a lot about and is pretty uh, familiar to longtime Lady Science fans, I'm sure. Uh, unsurprisingly, since men were the ones running around calling women mysterious, uh, men are also the ones investigating the mystery. Um, and many scientists took it upon themselves to discover women's secrets and ultimately control them. 
And at the same time, they're looking at ways to control nature and uh, often end up conflating the two. Uh, so for one particularly terrible example, uh, in the 17th century, Francis Bacon, who is often called the father of modern science, used a rape metaphor to illustrate man's power over nature. Blech. Couple hundred years later, um, Charles Darwin and his German colleague Karl Voigt both um, placed women lower in evolutionary hierarchy, because of course they did. Uh, Voigt wrote, We may be sure that whenever we perceive an approach to the animal type, the female is nearer to it than the man. Uh, Meanwhile, in the field of psychology, Havelock Ellis, and isn't that a name, um, echoed the sentiment. Um, he, he wrote, Women are for men the embodiments of the restrictive responsiveness to nature. To every man, the woman whom he loves is as the earth is to her legendary son. He has but to fall down and kiss her breast and he is strong again. <laughs> <sighs> Women's inferior place in society and um, relegation to the home could also be justified by her lower rung on the evolutionary ladder and uh, her emotional and nurturing biological nature. It's just science, guys! <laughs> uh, in the 20th century, um, Simone de Beauvier put it like this. Women, um, woman is the privileged object through which man subdues nature. <sighs> So what's actually interesting is that despite how oppressive this connection between women and nature has been, um, it was exactly this position in nature and society that gave women unique perspectives to engage in environmental activism. And that's not because women are essentially, quote unquote, more natural, but because their inferior position in society and culture next to nature has shaped their approaches to it. And because women were seen as the human embodiment of non-human nature, they were ironically placed in a position of authority to speak on behalf of it. And sometimes we mean that quite literally. Um, one example of this literal speaking for nature is Anna Letitia Barbald's 1771 poem, The Mouse's Petition. And she writes this poem from the perspective of a captive mouse that was intended for scientific experimentation. And she addresses it specifically to the famous chemist Joseph Priestley. So one night, Barbald went over to Priestley's house for dinner. And afterwards, as one does, he brought out a mouse that he intended to use in an experiment the next day and showed it to Barbald. Um, and these experiments included experiments with gases um, and air pumps and all sorts of things that are not great for animals to be caught up in. Um, so that night, Barbald wrote, that, um, wrote the mouse's petition. And as the story goes, she shoved it between the wires of the mouse's cage so that Priestley would find it the next morning. And um, speaking as the mouse in the poem, Barbald argues for the mouse's release. And allegedly, Priestley was so moved that he did let the mouse go. So Priestley was, I think, very much what we think of when we think of this like man of modern science. Um, he wrote, uh, the immediate use of natural science is the power it gives us over nature um, in his book, The History and Present of Electricity. But Barbald 
writes in the poem that this is actually, quote, a strong and oppressive force that shouldn't capture and cage, in this case, a mouse. So she already has like a very different idea of what science should be about than Priestley. And the way that she kind of expresses this is by writing on behalf of the mouse that he wants to experiment on. So Barbald is writing to Priestley at a time when debates about the use of non-human creatures in science were really ramping up, and it was largely women who were sort of turning up the heat on this. Um, Barbald and other women couldn't respond to scientists in the laboratory or in the pages of journals because they weren't welcome there. So poetry offered women an avenue for dissent. And what's also interesting about the poem about the mouse is the context in which Barbald wrote it, she did it in a domestic space in, you know, the dining room and at mealtime and kind of keeping with the expectations of her sort of feminine domesticity. This is the place from which she, you know, makes her argument. Yeah. One thing that, like, I think it's important to highlight is, like, because nature and science were so gendered that, like, women experience both of those things very differently than men did. They are going to, and that's one of those things like was shaping their approaches to nature. It also shaped their approach to science, which was that oppressive force on mm-hmm. yeah. nature. Yeah. Well, you can kind of, I can kind of imagine Barbara like listening to Priestley yammer on about what he's going to do to this mouse and really feeling like you're in, you know, that you could be in the same position as the mouse because you've been told your entire life that, you know, you're just this, like, kind of almost an animal yourself because you're a woman. Yeah. (laughs) And so you're just sitting there and he's like, yeah, I'm going to put it in this jar and then we're going to suck all the air out and see what happens. And you're like, okay. (laughs) I really wish you wouldn't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And like, this is also like around the same time um, when it like really heated debates about abolishing the um, transatlantic slave trade was going on. And Barbold Mm -hmm. was involved in that as well. Um, And, so you see kind of a connection between like her liberation of animals and liberation of people going hand in hand. That was kind of like a thing that was really prominent among a lot of women activists and suffragists is that they were also, a lot of them were also involved in some sort of environmental conservation type of effort as well. Like that those things didn't necessarily seem like they were separate avenues for activism, that they were kind of related in a way. And and frankly, it's it seems like it's because in in a funny way, society set it up that way. It's like mm-hmm. like you were saying earlier, Anna, that uh, if if women and and nature are one and the same or more closely connected, then uh, the preservation and rights of those things is also like interconnected mm-hmm. uh and and women are going to notice that <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and it's not like obviously they were very like this wasn't like subtext you know right. that when people were talking about <laughs> women and nature as being connected like they were like it was very explicit these types of things so <laughs> you know there are lots of paintings and statues that were very <laughs> obvious about right. that connection. Right. Yeah. Um, so if we jump ahead a little bit to the 19th century, um, this 
trend of women speaking for nature continues. And um, many other women also used poetry to register their descent for science. There's so much poetry during this time in this vein. Um, but with the rise of the steam-powered printing press and a popularity of the popular press, women started publishing uh, more books and magazine articles um, in order to organize and raise awareness for nature conservation. Um, even though they were still largely barred from, barred from publishing in academic journals. So this was kind of a way that they could get their voices out there to a like, larger audience, even though they weren't allowed to do so in journals. So in fact, we owe many of our bird legislative protections to women in this period who popularized the practice of birding through popular science writing and organizing. In England, women made up the majority of bird conservationists, and in the U.S., women like Florence Marion Bailey were found chapters of the Audubon. Um, Rosalie Edge even pressured the Audubon Society to stop taking money from rifle manufacturers, which seems <laughs> like that would be a no-brainer, but I guess it wasn't. Um, German opera singer Ellie Lehman refused to wear feathers during her time at the Metropolitan Opera, and she exchanged photographs for a promise of those people not to wear feathers, which I think is kind of neat. <laughs> um, I just like the different ways that like women find a way to, yeah, you know, do their activism. Um, I also I, I like the kind of how contemporary those kinds of examples of activism feel. Like the idea of um, of a like quote unquote nonprofit um, advocacy organization, whatever you want to call. Uh, I'm, as I'm referring to the Audubon, probably anachronistically, um, the idea of them divesting from mm -hmm. like a a harmful supporter, like is something that environmentalists talk about a lot today, mm -hmm. um, or the idea of uh, combining um, your interest in a particular celebrity, like showing in some ways showing what kind of causes you're interested in. Uh, those things being connected in some ways feel super modern, but. Uh, yeah, I love these two examples showing how um, that those ideas go back, those kinds of activism go back further than you'd think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was really like the, the birding and the writing that allowed more women to engage in conservation um, because they could do it from their homes, um, which was much more an acceptable place for women during this time, obviously, um, like Barbald. Um, so they wrote field guides and ornithological texts that observe birds from real life instead of observing them from captured and killed specimens. Um, many of these texts were aimed at children and other women, so again, staying kind of within that accepted domestic role. Um, and they were writing um, and observing from a shared identity with nature as gendered authorities and caretakers in their own homes. Um, and Alison Muir actually wrote a piece for us on women's writing about birds. Um, and she says that the contributions of these women have been easy to overlook because they wrote in a feminized tradition of women's literature, but they were able to instill in readers a love, a love of birds and parks and gardens outside of traditional scientific discourse. And I'm assuming they also like, in a large way, like reached more people publishing in this medium than if they were doing this in journals. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it makes me think of uh, sort of 
the connection to so much other, like, women's activism in the 19th century, where there's a degree to which, like, women are like, okay, fine, you say that uh, the one thing we're good at is, like, taking care of babies, so we're going to advocate for all things related to babies. Um, Or, okay, fine, um, you say that, like, we are these, like, naturalistic, mysterious creatures, so, okay, we're going to protect all the other naturalistic, mysterious creatures. Um, and, and sort of, well, obviously there, there are certainly problems in that this interesting kind of like taking this obsession with the domestic sphere and going, fine, we'll just like plant our flag here and still like be out in public and make a difference in the world, but do it in this way that you've told us is okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's really interesting how these women used the cultural capital that they had. Yeah in a way that they were able to acceptably still navigate it as well. You know what I mean? Um, Kind of like with the, you know, the, um, the opera singer using her cultural capital as a well-known opera star to demand certain things in exchange, you know? Yeah. Um, I find that really interesting. And like, even though some of these women were like, I guess to modern feminist eyes, like, it's actually not great to, like, accept your essentialization as nature or something like that. But, like, I don't know. I find that it's really interesting the way that we nuance this a little bit to understand what they were actually doing, even if they were kind of embracing an essentialized feminine nature. Yeah, and I think maybe one thing to remember is that, you know, in the 19th century, if you were not independently wealthy, you and you were a woman, there's... It's not really, it's not like they're not being radical enough by not accepting that they have to do science in their home. It's that they would, you know, not survive and they would end up, like, in the workhouse if they were trying to, like, strike out on their own that way. Yeah. So staying in your domestic context is, like, a survival thing. What's radical is that they, like, refused to, you know, be silenced about the things they were interested in. And they leveraged all of these sort of technological and, like, media developments to to get all this information out there. And I like what you said, Layla, that they probably reached way more people. Yeah. Absolutely, they reached way more people. Like, publishing in, like, the popular press meant that, the, you know, not only was the distribution higher than it would be for a scientific journal, but, like, it's just, like, way cheaper for people to be able to access that information than buying, like, scientific books that would have been published by men of science. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and it did earn, like... A lot of these women, their their livelihood, like this was, it was already like, it was becoming more acceptable in the 19th century for women to earn their own money. It still wasn't as acceptable as it is today, for instance, but um, this gave women a way to earn an income without the support of a male relative from their homes. You know, so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different, there's economics and like you said, Anna, technological things going on um, as well. That's kind of creating this atmosphere where women are able to do these things. Yeah, there's also just this idea of like, uh, like a natural theological context for nature writing too, that is like, um, for religious women, like, like, observing nature and writing about it is like a an act of like piety because right. you're observing God's works and talking about it. So there's 
that context too that affords women an opportunity to kind of um, pursue, you know, the observation of nature in a context that accords with their kind of religious beliefs. So there's a lot of like, I don't know, we talk about this sort of moment in time, I think, on the podcast a lot because there's just, like you said, there's so much poetry, there's so much popular writing. Like it's a really kind of fruitful moment for women doing nature writing. And it's because of these kind of intersections of all of these things that are happening in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. It's just like a really fascinating period. Yeah. Yeah. Go go to grad school, study it. (laughs) Yeah, go study the 19th century like 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 a million other graduates. But but it's so weird and awesome. And you'll realize that like so much about the modern world. Yeah. Yeah. It's the bad great. stuff and the good stuff. Exactly. The 19th century <laughs> is great. That's where it's at. So, so far, um, we've been talking about the environment, um, kind of purposefully, vaguely, but mostly in a way that kind of means the stuff untouched by the human world, kind of the no- non-human nature. Um, but in the 20th century, environment started to take on a different meaning, uh, especially as the world industrialized and urbanized. Um, environment didn't just include non-human nature, it also included our immediate surroundings in cities and in workplaces and in our own homes. And it wasn't just about uh, what was happening to nature outside of the city, but also the conditions inside it. Environment became more and more connected to social inequalities. Um, and, And I think it sort of as it did that, it the the feminine and the and environment kind of still stayed connected even as the idea of what the environment was changed um and while men were out mountaineering and pioneering their way into environmentalism and and this kind of traditional environmental like teddy roosevelt yeah (laughs) teddy roosevelt john muir who are like in yosemite hanging out being cool um (laughs) Women are still excluded from these masculine forms of activism um, because you can't be... It's harder to be a mountain man if you're a woman, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But they were focused on um, their immediate environments. Um, What they saw was poverty and dangerous working conditions and abysmal pay and inhumane living conditions and pollution. Uh, so, and I feel like particularly pollution will sound familiar to people who are like, oh, that's an environmental thing that I know about. Um, (laughs) but all of these things, of course, are part of the environment. Uh, Ellen Swallow Richards was one of the first people to combine an interest in ecology, civic improvement, and political activism. Uh, She investigated the Massachusetts water supply and ended up accusing the American Public Health Association of murdering 200 children a year for creating hazardous conditions in schools, uh, such as open sewer pipes and dirty toilets. Uh, Richard focused on the experience of women and encouraged them to apply chemistry to their knowledge of food and home goods. So this is another thing where um, a woman is taking something that is sort of very traditionally in the feminine female sphere and saying, hey, we can make this better um, through different scientific practices. Um, She believed that women had the power to introduce balance and equality back into a system that the industry had disrupted. 
And at MIT, Richards opened an all-woman lab where they developed the scientific principles of food. In her lab, she undertook studies to weed out food that had been adulterated with toxic off-label ingredients. This led to the first food purity laws in this country. Those sound familiar to people. <laughs> yeah, people know what those are too. <laughs> yeah, but one thing we should, you know, think about is the sort of larger social context, even of some of the really awesome things that Ellen Swallow Richards did, because Richards kind of really missed the mark on her food activism in a big way because her work did not speak to all women. So she wanted to impose her kind of scientifically prepared food on immigrant working class families that wanted to keep their own traditional foods from their homes. And she also excluded non-Christians by saying that um, the native, native religions of immigrants and uh, were like a hindrance to true reform, that there's no way they could kind of join the modern age of clean food if they were still practicing, you know, religions that weren't yeah. Christian. And, it, like, what's crazy about that is, like, she was making, like, these foods and putting, like, putting her kitchens and stuff into, like, poor immigrant neighborhoods to feed them her food. But, like, she's trying to, like, save them in this really, like white, Christian, savory type of way, which, again, something else would be familiar with today yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Like serving uh, them they're... while disparaging them at the same time. Right. And it's it's kind of funny because, like, there are so many non-Christian religions that have strict ideas about food uh-huh. that are basically about food purity and, yeah. like, people not dying of weird diseases. Most, like, kosher and halal laws, for example are really about, like, don't get trichinosis and uh, mm-hmm. don't eat rotting meat. And, and, there, and there are other examples uh, in, of that and other religions as well. And so it's, there's, I feel like there's a particular irony to this idea that, like, non-Christian food is, is dirty when actually Christianity, because of its, doesn't have the same kind of built-in checks against food purity. Yeah. Um, and I think that shows, like, a real limitation of science, like... Yeah. Like, what she was able to do to kind of, not create, but, like, give us a firm understanding of nutritional science has been really important, but also the limitations of that science when it comes to, like, real human beings and culture and stuff. Yeah. Well, and so in the same era, Rebecca Cole, who was a black physician, was speaking specifically to the environmental conditions of black people, which is something that, you know, people like Richards weren't doing. They're kind of, like universalizing everything in a way that doesn't account for these social differences. So Cole saw environmental conditions in cities to be worse for black people because white landlords kept black people living in unhealthy conditions. So she advocated for regulation in housing through the cubic airspace laws, which tackled overcrowding and inflated rent on unhealthy living spaces. And Cole is typically seen as developing a sociological approach to medicine, but her work in this time period easily overlaps with that of urban environmentalists like Richards. And I think that's, you know, looking at a, a sort of larger picture of of urban environments as environments and who's mm-hmm. kind of like intervening to clean them up and in what ways and 
uh, what counts as dirty and who is dirty. And Mm -hmm. those kinds of ideas are really important to kind of foreground when we talk about, um, you know, the environment. And Mm -hmm. like just the idea of what's clean and what's dirty is so culturally loaded. Um, It's just really important to kind of think through these ideas. Yeah. And I think like that not even though like there's this connection between like women and nature that there's not all women were yeah. uh had the same relationship with nature or were aligned with nature in the same way either like even though it was like rare for women to be able to go out mountaineering in pants um some did um right. but like that got to be a choice women who didn't get the choice to be out of doors were like enslaved women you know right. Um, um, migrant workers, you know, like those relationships to nature are also very different and culturally Mm -hmm. and socially constructed as well. So like the, these movements that we've been talking about 17th century, I guess we've been talking about 17th century, 18th century, (laughs) 19th century. So there was some 17th um, century in there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They all kind of lead up to this moment in the 20th century um, with the current or the more modern environmental movement. Um, but they didn't appear just with Carson and Silent Spring. Um, it had been well underway for uh, centuries. In the book, Rachel Carson and Her Sisters, Robert Musel um, says that Carson was an inheritor, not a creator of both a movement of women writing about their love of birds and nature and conservation of wildlife and this other movement that came a little bit later, driven by concerns over pollution and the health of communities. I know that we kind of like plowed through 200 years of <laughs> history, but I think it at least gives like people like an idea of what was out there and what was going on. Yeah, and I think it's also a good way to kind of help revise our thinking about what the environment is Mm -hmm. i mean not to get into the whole like what is nature discussion but just that like the environment isn't just like yosemite you know (laughs) right um and that like the the environmental spaces that we need to protect are yes sure like um the habitats of endangered creatures but also like the places where human beings live and Mm -hmm. whether or not they have like adequate conditions you know those things all fall under the umbrella of environmentalism I think that's what you know a lot of the examples that we talked about kind of prove that like we're talking about everything sort of as we were talking about especially in the 19th century and there's this idea in the 18th century of like there is the the non-human world out there as the environment and uh Layla, your examples, you're, you're pointing out that uh, for, for migrant workers, for slave women, for different kinds of indigenous people, like, the environment isn't out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that in um, these 20th century movements and thinking about sort of the environmentalism of preserving places like Yosemite and environmental justice, sort of looking at... Uh, histories and cultures and communities where there isn't this sort of there hasn't been this western divide between uh, 
the natural stuff and the non-natural stuff or the human stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you see this really interesting expansion of um, what, it, what the environment and what environmentalism means. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about all of the examples that we talked about um, is that they're really, um, their activism and their writing and everything came out of like a connection to place. Mm-hmm. Um, the more interesting, I think, stories come out of this connection to place when we're talking about the environment, because then we get mm-hmm. to see what environment means to different people and why. Um, but then like, and we're going to talk about this with Tina, but like environmental activism has often happened in the context of place. And so when you have these like huge kind of global solutions to climate change that don't take into account people's connection to place, like you kind of miss something. You're going to miss solutions. You're going to miss perspectives that are important to solving environmental problems. Yeah. And one of the things that you and I have talked a lot about, Layla, especially with these like huge global or technological solutions to climate change that think of the environment as like a planetary scale thing, you run into like questions of like authority and consent. Who gets to decide what we do to the entire planet? Right. And who, who, and if we have to like have some kind of like tiered representational decision-making, like who gets to decide who is involved in that and who's left out of that? You know, what about, what about people who don't have any like any contact with the Western world who is thinking of doing this? Like, right. how are we supposed to account for what they want? Like, we can't. And so it's like there's a in thinking of the environment as a planetary scale thing, you run into really serious issues where you're <laughs> you're just running roughshod over people and over everybody basically i don't know mm-hmm. kind of got off track there yeah no it's fine <laughs> yeah but this idea of like who gets to decide like in a more sort of place-based context you of thinking of the environment in like smaller chunks that way the the stakeholders become much more clear and are given much more of an opportunity to speak in the, in like a smaller place-based context than the planet, which we already have people who say they are speaking for the planet. Our favorite dipshit CEO (laughs) just launched a bunch well (laughs) Jeff the the one who smokes weed on Joe Rogan's podcast because he's so cool. Right. Yeah. I mean he launched a bunch of satellites into the sky and now, you know, they have changed the way the constellations look, you know? Mm -hmm. That's so weird. Yeah. And and like, I mean, come on guys. Didn't we all learn in grade school that like the earth is really varied in its environments? Like it just <laughs> I, there, there's a there's a degree to which there's there's a very important social question of like yeah, of authority and who gets to decide what's good for people on this global scale and the importance of localness. Um but it's also like I feel like some of these technical technological solutions um, or global solutions don't even keep an eye on um, the specifics of different climates and different environments around the world. Uh, one of the things I think that that gets us like that's so annoying about the way that we talk about climate change and the way that like 
people who don't want to hear about climate change, like, dismiss it, is that, yes, climate change is affecting different parts of the world wildly differently Mm -hmm. because the world is wildly different. Uh, There is too little rain where I grew up in Southern California because it is naturally a drier place, and there is too much rain here where I live in Philadelphia because it has always been a wetter place. Mm-hmm. And and the idea that those could have opposite reactions, but they're because of this whole global system, um, is something I feel like we don't grapple with enough, and what that means for solutions. Any of these like global geoengineering solutions are predicated on models of like understanding the global climate that are just there's no way for them to be granular enough like we can't we don't have enough like data capacity to make a granular enough model of the entire planet's climate so that we could understand what those changes would be i was thinking while you were talking about in the last couple of years or something i saw this great study uh like a survey of all of the creatures that live inside your house. So it's mostly bugs. (laughs) (laughs) It was really fascinating, though, because they took the, like, no one had ever really done this before, just done, like, cataloged every single living organism that they could find inside just, like, a regular person's house. And I believe they discovered a couple of new species while doing that. So the idea that we have enough information and enough data to make a decision about what the entire planet will, what will happen to the entire planet if we shoot a bunch of stuff into the clouds is ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) There's no possible way we can even, we're just guessing at this point. It's not even really an educated guess. So (laughs) just throwing spaghetti. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like we don't even know how many bugs live in our houses. Come on. Coming back to our old friend Francis Bacon in the 17th century, that do we have to? <laughs> well, we don't have to, but like um, equating the natural sciences discoveries in the natural world, and like I'm going to use this word intentionally, penetrating her secrets <laughs> as a rape metaphor, and like that's something that Anna and I have written about is that these like massive solutions, global solutions, quote-unquote solutions to climate change, are in a way the same thing that Francis Bacon was talking about in the 17th Mm -hmm. century, because you do have this idea of consent, that there is no way that you can get a consent on a global scale to authorize something that will fundamentally alter the entire planet. Like, And it's that same kind of still dominant masculine pioneering type of behavior and framework of which we think solutions to problems. And, and like, that's paired with the fact that in kind of the popular discourse, culture, education, um, which certainly has an impact on what scientists are doing, the Earth is still feminine. It's still Mother Earth. It's still her a lot of the time. And, uh, and that's just, like, real baked in real deep. And, and those things, we gotta grapple with the, the way that those ways of using language are related. And it goes, I mean, just one last thing I wanted to say, it goes, it goes the other way, too. So if mm-hmm. we continue to think of the Earth as uh, a feminine 
form, if we continue to think of it as a, I don't, I'm not doing this to be crass, but like as a, a figure whose secrets need to be penetrated, like that goes the other way in that like, we still live in a world where it's cool for men like Elon Musk to just do whatever they want because they have money and to shoot a bunch of stuff into orbit, you know, basically with nobody's permission just because they can. And that kind of stuff trickles down into how we treat women still. Yeah. That like if we think of the earth as a as a female figure that we can do whatever we want to like what does that mean for you know us here on the surface Mm -hmm. like it's all connected (laughs) yeah i think that's a good time to bring in tina talking about shooting things into the atmosphere and (laughs) indeed (laughs) yes indeed we've been looking at feminism and the environment from a historical perspective uh but let's turn our attention to something a little bit more present focused Uh, We're excited to welcome Dr. Tina Sicca to the podcast. Uh, Tina is a lecturer in media and culture at Newcastle University in the UK, where she works in areas of feminist science studies, critical race theory, health, and the environment. Uh, She's written for The Jacobin, Public Seminar, and The Ottawa Citizen. Tina's latest book is Climate Technology, Gender, and Justice, The Standpoint of the Vulnerable, published with Springer Press, and that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, So welcome, Tina. Thank you very much. Let's just jump right in. Uh, Your book looks specifically at um, geoengineering as a solution to climate change and examines it from a feminist perspective. So maybe to get us started, could you describe what geoengineering is and sort of how it's being considered as a solution to climate change? Sure. Um, So the best way to think about geoengineering is to use uh, the rural society's definition. So it's um, a set of technologies and practices that aim to deliberately intervene in the Earth's climate in order to um, mitigate global warming. So uh, there's two types, um, carbon dioxide removal, which um, are technologies that aim to actually extract carbon from the atmosphere, Um, and then solar radiation management, which is sort of the area I work a bit more on, um, and that tries to offset um, greenhouse gases by getting the Earth to absorb less radiation. So the one that I tend to look at most is stratospheric aerosols, which attempts to basically replicate the way that volcanic eruptions can lower the global temperature. So it's saying that, okay, the sulfates that volcanoes emit have been found to lower the temperature, um, and can we put sulfates in the atmosphere to do that? So you describe um, a specific approach um, called feminist contextual empiricism. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. So the easiest way to think about uh, feminist contextual empiricism um, is that it basically marries feminist research methods with empirical science. Um, And the interpretation that I use uh, comes out of Helen Longino's work. She's... um, an American philosopher of science, now I believe affiliated with Stanford. Um, And it's an approach that moves away from a model of science that sees it as something that's static, 
Um, and it argues that uh, science and the way that we do science is actually quite contextual. So you have to justify your theories in a certain context. There are certain assumptions you make, certain priorities you have, certain methods. Um, so research context matters. So it incorporates that. And then it's also socially situated. So there's this idea that the political values and the ethics of the time, um, the social mores, common sense ideas about gender and politics, this all does also comes out of science. Uh, so it's this, uh, this idea that you know science changes, that models change, adjustments are made based on new ideas and discoveries. Um, we've sort of found that Western practices can be quite masculinist and you know um, value hierarchy and competition and, and feminist science tries to critique those values um, and to put forth a framework that is empirical so it retains the rigor um, but it's feminist so it looks at how context and social norms matter as well. Mm -hmm. Rebecca, before you get, jump into your question, I wanted to ask something about what you said, Tina. Um, you called um, kind of the, like, Western science um, static. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that particular feature of science is something we've talked about before on yeah. the podcast. Yeah. So could you explain what you mean by a static science? Yeah, absolutely. So we sort of have this idea that scientific truths are out there to be discovered. Um, and they're just immutable, and they're um, you know, yeah, just something that we can we can find, and, and they're universal, and they won't change. Um, but we we often find that you know technologies um, you know change how we view science and how we practice science, and so uh, that idea of science is ever changing, and we build upon it. Um, it's something that I think is really important, and feminist science studies really tries to highlight that. Yeah, one of, one of the things that I found uh, really neat about your book is that it did kind of give this really great theoretical grounding for a lot of the things we talk about in Lady Science. So, like, for readers and listeners who kind of appreciate our, like, looking at the different ways that culture and society influence how science is done and if you if you want to get like a really good crunchy overview of um of those theoretical underpinnings um Tina I think you do a great job of kind of laying Thank that you. out uh and I found it fascinating um and along those lines um sort of you talk about these five virtues of uh feminist empiricism um and we won't go into all of them because that would I think take a whole, at least a whole hour, uh, but I was hoping you could explain, um, and people should just read the book, um, yes. but uh, it'd be great if you could explain just maybe one or two of those virtues and how it helps us analyze geoengineering in particular. Sure. So there are, you could kind of think about them as complementing um, or, or building on Thomas Kuhn's virtues. So those do exist, you know, Thomas Kuhn, uh, sort of a uh, philosopher of science uh, looked at accuracy, simplicity, consistency, breadth of scope, and fruitfulness. And so Helen Longino um, argues that there are other types of um, values that we and virtues that we can use. 
Um, and so two of them that I think are most important are the empirical adequacy and then also the ontological heterogeneity. Um, so empirical ad um, adequacy is an epistemic virtue, so it's really important in terms of knowledge production. It's this idea that we have to have a fit between um, theory and observation. It's quantitative, it's uh, testable, it's falsifiable, um, but, but there are values there as well. We have to sort of fit, um, make the fit between theory and observation has values also in background assumptions. So when I talk about geoengineering, I try to probe those background assumptions that we use to even argue, you know, certain truths about the science. So, you know, for geoengineering models, I talk about, you know, why is there an over-reliance on theory over observational or historical data? There tends to be this preference. Um, why do we use CO2 as a control? What about methane or nitrous dioxide? Um, why do we choose the 280 parts per million as the baseline? And that's from the Industrial Revolution. But we've sort of gone back and found that, you know, there was a lot of carbon intensive activities from deforestation, early agriculture that was quite disruptive. So if we go back to that baseline, it's not like everything would be great. Um, and then also uh, it, it sort of argues um, it would also probe why we prefer global averages over local averages, the sort of politics of scale. Um, and also there's this uh, inbuilt bias towards uh, large, big data, quantitative, this, this tendency towards militarization, um, which are also part of, of how we build empirical adequacy. Um, and then ontological heterogeneity uh, looks at trying to expand the way we do science. So to make it more um, participatory, more open to difference, um, to try and make marginal findings, you know, consider them as not inferior or something we can just eliminate to sort of ask why they're, why we're getting these findings and, and what is it telling us? Um, and not to sort of think in a way that everything is monocausal, that there's just like one cause and one um, effect. So this would be, you know, looking at different uh, local specificities. So, you know, what are the ozone effects of geoengineering? Um, what is it going to do to monsoons? Um, look at the different economic sectors, um, heat, electricity, and agriculture. Um, what are they emitting? Um, to look at questioning uh, the urban-rural binary that we have as part of our methods, where we see urban areas as really cosmopolitan and where all the solutions come from. Um, but rural areas are likely to bear most of the consequences of climate change. And there's a sort of colonial underpinning of that um, as well. Um, so it, it pays attention to, you know, model disagreement and you know, deviations and nonconformity, which is something that science tends not to do as much. So I wanted to return to um, geoengineering and like, you know, think about these theoretical concepts kind of more specifically to the problems you're working on. So you 
you call climate change and geoengineering both wicked problems, which I think is a really great phrase. And can you kind of explain what you mean by wicked problems and maybe how you're, you know, how, uh, you know, feminist science is approaching such problems? Yeah. So the term itself is actually over, it's over like 40 years old. Um, and it came out of um, urban planning and, and policy studies. And it sort of argues that, you know, in our, our kind of modern or postmodern environment, that the problems we have are really, really complicated. So Horst Riddle um, came up with this conception of, um, uh, of, of the term actually itself um, of wicked problems. And he talks about problems. The characteristics are that they're large scale social problems. Um, that they tend to have many variables, um, span national boundaries, so this, you know they're not confined to one place, which is you know something. Of course, geoengineering and climate change are, are you know would have those characteristics. Um, they're massive scope. They don't have a, a kind of um, time frame, you know, where they'll go away. They're and they're really hard to diagnose. Um, and they can't easily be undone. If you do find a solution, it's sort of something that you can't change. And so um, that's one of the concerns around geoengineering, especially um, solar radiation management that I work on, is that you know if our present society decides to use it, um, that you know a lot of the modeling is found that if they abruptly stop. Um, temperatures will rise really quickly. Um, and then there's also this idea that of intergenerational justice, you know, we're sort of locking in the next generation into these solutions that we're not sure are going to work. So it's these really kind of uncertain and fragmented and complicated problems. Another example are pandemics. Um, so yeah, yeah, but it's a really, really useful way to think about um, problems that are multi-causal and that are complicated in a way that are, are basically global problems. Uh, one thing, sorry, before uh, you jump into the last question, Layla, um, mm -hmm. just one thing I've been thinking about is uh, sort of, <laughs> there's a, there is a like indisputable, like old school sci-fi-ness to all of the ideas I feel like related to geoengineering in this way that is frankly a little bit creepy to me. Um, but it is interesting. And like, I think you're, you had a, you said something earlier about the connection between um, militarization and science. And I think also this idea of, um, I feel like in some way sci-fi like seeks to solve or like work through wicked problems, but also there's a certain genre of classic sci-fi that um, does that by simplifying what the problems are. And I feel like, I don't know quite where I'm going with this, but I feel like there is something about geoengineering that, and this goes to show kind of the idea of like scientists are part of their culture, but there is an attempt to simplify a a wicked problem that feels like some kind of like super masculine kinds of sci-fi uh, that I find fascinating and um, distressing. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like 
like a like a super villain. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Type exactly. of scheme is what it. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I think. Yeah. I think the best example of that is the uh, the proposal, which is another uh, solar radiation management one uh, to put mirrors in space. So to like put mm, these mirrors yeah, to like sure. reflect, uh, yeah, and absolutely, it is this sci-fi kind of, and and it also has a it also has a like a bit of a a, a phallic sensibility, um, you know, in terms of just <laughs> yeah. like related related to the space program, and 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 it also goes back to like um, Reagan's Star Wars missile defense project, but I think this idea of you know space as a, a a locus of kind of, you know, how we can, you know, intervene in ways, you know, it's sort of the unknown. And I think science um, that, um, you know, science fiction does this really great, it's this really great way to grapple with some of those really complicated, wicked problems in a way that I think is much better than these solutions. Um, uh, that, that, yeah, it, it has all those attributes. And I think that looking through the lens of, of, you know, Octavia Butler or, or other kind of writers that, um, you know, are trying to make, and it's really feminist, that type of writing, because it's making the problem more complicated and trying to sort of navigate through solutions in ways that these kind of very, unicausal, you know, intervene, fix it, um, technology will save us, uh, kind of technophilic sensibility doesn't. And it really is married to uh, a kind of uh, heteronormative patriarchal structure of scientific practice. Mm -hmm. I had a man on Twitter once suggest to me that we blow up all of our volcanoes to solve climate change. I'm not kidding. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. surprised. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're talking about like aggressive male solutions to things, I think blowing shit up is, you know, the immediate go-to for a lot of people. And you can, you can also see that all of the people that are involved in, in these projects um, and this research, I think there's like one woman who is doing um, any kind of actual um, engagement with projects around geoengineering. So um, and it's, it's Marsha McNutt. She's actually the president of the National Academy of Sciences right now, I believe. Um, and, you know, there are projects that are, are in the works. Um, David Keith out of Harvard um, is a, a scientist who is um, putting together a plan to sort of test solar radiation management, not solar radiation management and actually putting sulfates, but he's testing the delivery system. So, you know, can we set up these balloons? And I think it might be in Arizona or, or Monterey that they're thinking about doing it. And he's gotten money from Bill Gates. Um, so there's this strange um, billionaires club, this Elon Musky type of yeah. of uh, support of of these technologies as well. Um, well, as I'm sure you know, we spend a lot of time critiquing science uh, here. <laughs> um, really similar to um, what you're doing in your book, and one thing that we hear a lot, um, and I'm sure that you do as well, that right now, um, 
that it's dangerous to question science um, because we already have, you know, we've got anti-vax going on. We've got um, um, people like people going around saying climate change isn't real, much less having discussions about what solutions can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering what your response is to people who say that because we're kind of in this massive crisis of um, authority and consensus and facts and stuff like that, like that they say we can't critique science. So what's kind of your response to those people? Yeah, so uh, it's a really difficult dilemma. Uh, A lot of my research is aimed at finding ways to critique uh, scientific processes and methods, you know, along the lines of gender, race, disability, sexuality, class, but preserve its truth content. And so the argument that that I sort of make is this approach, this feminist contextual empiricism would result in, in better science, more rigorous science, even when we are critiquing it. Um, it's, it's not a relativist approach. Um, it has the empirical adequacy, so it grounds itself in some conception of truth, but it remains open to questioning science. So, you know, marrying empirical adequacy with all of these other virtues. And the second part of feminist contextual empiricism is what really gives it uh, or grounds it in a kind of consensus formation. So it it argues that, um, you know, to make scientific discoveries and um, values have a kind of truth content you have to have a scientific community that does this. So you have to have spaces to engage. Um, Science has to be open to criticism. Um, It has to incorporate that criticism, public standards. Um, Intellectual authority has to be equally distributed. So it can't be that, you know, people from the public have no say. So this is what makes it objective is that it is this process of checks and balances and consensus formation within the scientific community that's open to public citizen science as well. Um, And I think it's also important to make it clear that, um, you know, another sort of issue that, that comes up as part of this is that, you know, how is this science feminist? You know, isn't it just good science? Um, and I get that question a lot as well, but um, what what's feminist about it is that it highlights experiences of marginalization. And it sort of argues that the experience of marginalization that women and other um, oppressed groups have had throughout their lives have left them in this unique place to see things differently and to have distinct concerns and to um, have specific questions and to, you know, to, to maybe explore different methods um, and new models. Um, and I think that that's a really good way in avoiding essentializing this approach. So it's, it's you know, not, not a feminine science, it's a feminist science, so it's a kind of practice. Um, and I think that's what this framework does. So it simultaneously um, avoids being relativist. And it also makes it feminist in a way that doesn't essentialize women as one kind of thing. Well, um, before we wrap up, I just want to say that, um, first of all, thank you for 
being here. And also, um, Tina's going to be having a piece coming out for um, the magazine soon, um, in which there's um, a bunch of good sources um, that you can follow up on in there. Um, do some more reading about um, a little bit more detailed about some of the stuff that we talked about today. Um, so be on the lookout for that on the site. So um, thank you so much, Tina. And for the rest of you, uh, if you liked our episode today, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at, at LadyXScience or hashtag LadySciPod. For show notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for a monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea, and more, visit LadyScience.com. And we are an independent magazine, so we deport depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon or through one-time donations. Just visit ladyscience.com slash donate. Until next time, you can find us on Facebook at at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter and Instagram at at LadyXScience.